Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report on this wet Friday. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Robert Schull. Later in the program, we will listen to part two by environmental correspondent Zero Rose as he speaks with a homesteader and sustainability educator from Spencer, Indiana, about her life journey in academia and as a nature lover from a young age. And now for your environmental reports. Inside climate change reports that in an unprecedented step to preserve and maintain the most carbon-rich elements of U.S. forests in an era of climate change, President Joe Biden's administration last week proposed to end commercially driven logging of old-growth forest uh, trees in national forests. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack, who oversees U.S. Forest Service, issued a noted notice of intent to amend the land management plans of all 128 national forests to prioritize old growth conservation and recognize the oldest tree's unique role in carbon storage. It would be the first nationwide amendment to forest plans in the 118-year history of the Forest Service, where Local rangers typically have the final word on how to balance forests' role in watershed, wildlife, and recreation with the agency's mandate to maintain a sustained yield of timber. The national and local environmental advocates have been urging the Biden administration to adopt a new policy, emphasizing preservation in national forests, treating them as a strategic reserve of carbon. Although they praised the old growth proposal as an historic step, they wanted to see protection extended to mature forests, those dominated by trees roughly 80 to 150 years old, which are a far larger portion of the national forests. As old growth trees are lost, which can happen rapidly due to megafires and other assaults, they argue that the Forest Service should be ensuring there are fully developed trees on the landscape to take their place. The National Climate Assessment uh, released by the administration this fall included data underscoring the urgency of the issue. The amount of carbon sequestered by U.S. forest land decreased by 22% from 1990 to 2019 due to a combination of drought, wildfire, and disturbances by insects and disease. In the webcast presentations this fall on its work to update agency policy, the Forest Service showed that the amount of mature old-growth forest in national forests exposed to temperatures in excess of 90 degrees for more than two months a year has doubled 
compared to the last three decades of the last century. If global carbon emissions continue on a high trajectory, exposure to such extreme temperatures is on track to double again by mid-century and double again by the end of the 21st century. This will raise the destructiveness of fires. Of Indiana's original 20 million acres of forests, fewer than 2,000 acres of old-growth forests remain intact. Most of the sites that remain are now protected as natural preserves, and many have been selected as na uh, national natural landmarks. The government has shown little interest in preserving even this small amount of old-growth forests. According to the New York Times, the first large offshore wind farm in New England has started producing electricity, a milestone for an industry that has struggled to get off the ground over the past year. The power started flowing late on Tuesday. For now, the Vineyard Wind Project, located off the coast of Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, can send only 5 megawatts of power to the grid from a single towering wind turbine. But the companies behind the project, Avangrid and Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners, plan to install a total of 62 turbines with 800 megawatts of capacity, or roughly enough electricity to power 400,000 homes by the end of this year. Vineyard Wind is the nation's second utility-scale offshore wind farm to start generating electricity. Another large project off the coast of New York, South Fork Wind, began producing power in December. Once completed, South Fork will be capable of producing 132 megawatts of electricity. The two projects are coming online at a turbulent time for the nascent offshore wind industry. To fight climate change, many eastern states are hoping to install dozens of large wind farms in the Atlantic Ocean that can generate electricity without emitting any planet-warming planet greenhouse gases. But lately, developers of those projects have struggled with soaring costs, high interest rates, supply chain delays, and bursts of local opposition. The Biden administration has made offshore wind a priority, essentially aiming to create an industry from scratch. But the United States remains far behind Europe, which has already installed more than 32,000 megawatts of capacity in its waters. In 2023, 55% of Germany's power came from renewables, an increase of 6.6% according to the Energy Office. Is that correct? Am yes. I reading that correct in yes. 2023? Yes. Okay. Um, Europe's biggest national economy has a goal of 80% green energy by 2030. The country plans to get rid of most of its coal, has already ceased relying on nuclear power, and in the future intends to use gas primarily as backup for its energy grid. Quotation, we have broken the 50% mark for renewables for the first time, end quote, said Robert Habeck, Germany's vice chancellor of, and federal minister for economic affairs and climate action, in a statement as the, na as the nation reported. Our measures to simplify planning and approvals are starting to take effect. Germany's renewables mix include 31.1% from wind, 12% from solar and biomass, and 3.4% from a mixture of hydropower and other renewable sources. Wind farms, especially those on land, made the biggest contribution, the press release said. 
The energy sector regulator said the renewables increase in 2023 was bolstered by weather and an expansion of capacity, reported Reuters. The total amount of power supplied by Germany's public networks decreased by 5% last year, indicating less demand for fossil fuels in favor of renewables. The country's economic economy continued to feel the effects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the decline of energy imports and resulting price increases that followed in 2022. The energy sector regulator said the renewables increase in 2023 was bolstered by weather and an expansion of capacity, reported Reuters. And now part two of a conversation between Zero Rose and Aliyah Kuthan, a sustainability educator and homesteader from Owen County, about her formative years, education, and passion for environmental and social justice. Uh, you know, I did a lot of writing recently uh, for Village Earth about Native American uh, land issues uh, for their sub-article, sub sub uh, sub-organization, I think. It's not really an organization. It's a website uh, and database called Native Land Information Systems. And uh, the great late David Bertocci was uh, the the head of that. He founded that. Um, Ode Chesney uh, from France was also uh, very active on the reservations out west particularly Pine Ridge in South Dakota and some others. And those were the two that hired me as a freelancer to uh, and welcomed me into the, kind of into the fold so that I could write for their blog. But the things that I wrote about were um, issues that where that overlap is between uh, land and culture and environment and the, the ability to sustain oneself, so economy as well. Uh, food, I wrote about food sovereignty, I wrote about education, I wrote about um, land-grant universities. Um, I, you know, and there, there's so much interconnection between those three aspects of sustainability. Uh, it, it's what biodiversity is uh, all about. You know, really, in in an environment, in an ecosystem, you have, for instance, biodiversity. You have have to have the keystone species, uh, which without that, the the entire ecosystem would would just crumble, you know, and disintegrate. It wouldn't be as viable without those keystone species. That might be an earthworm, it might be a wolf, you know. You've got to have a little bit of everything. And that also kind of applies within the microcosm of our own bodies is that the microbiome is producing neurotransmitters is our front of our, our, our immune system. And, you know, if there's an imbalance of one species, that's when you start getting into disease problems. And so the key is to create a diversity so that some species are keeping other species in check and so you know a lot of these things we think of in the external world and a lot of people are divorced from the natural world beyond the bounds of the city and everything but one way to think about it is that our own bodies are a microcosm 
of the planet and we are a planet and we have you know billions and billions <laughs> Carl Sagan would say uh, of constituents really and they are running our what we want and what we crave depends on what bugs we've got in our gut right yeah <laughs> exactly I was thinking about um, you know, something similar to that um, you know the only way we can thrive is if we have the proper foods the proper you know um, air we have to have clean water we have to have you know th those are human rights and the United Nations has a list of human rights uh, a list of indigenous people's rights and and I you know I had touched upon some of that in some of my writing for the Native Sun and a little bit with uh, um, Village Earth, but back to sustainability. Um, I want to dig a little deeper, you know, into that uh, as those aspects of, of interconnectivity and biodiversity. When when like you said, one one thing is off or not or missing, like from a person's diet, uh, it, it can throw off the immune system. It can throw off uh, uh, throw off their whole uh, you know um, way of functioning. You know, can, they can go. For, you can go from a, being a functional human being to a dysfunctional human being just by not having the proper foods, and that's where. Um, food sovereignty comes into play. Uh, that's another overlap between social justice and uh, agricultural, uh, environmental justice. And the, way, I, the reason I say agriculture and environmental justice is because those, those have to be together. Uh, in Minnesota right now, they have passed laws uh, that require farmers to have uh, easement, uh, na natural easement around their um, their farms so that the runoff doesn't go directly into waterways. The runoff from farms, uh, agricultural chemicals, doesn't go directly into the waterways but is filtered through a, a large swath of uh, grasses and, and other uh, plants that can absorb nitrates and absorb different uh, toxic uh, toxic chemicals and keep them out of, you know, filter those so that they don't run directly into the water supply. They're filtered first. Uh, this this is uh, similar to what I'm doing on my land right now. Uh, I don't have toxic chemicals on my land that I put on there, but there's runoff from up the hill, I know, where, where neighbors spray and uh, it rains and then it comes down my hill and I've had to divert um, water and slow the process of erosion and slow the, the process of water running um, straight into the, the creek down the hill for me by creating terraces and berms and um, swales and, and just slowing that water movement process down. That's, that's been my biggest focus for the last 10 years. And that 
in turn has helped species to thrive on the land that are native species that I'm studying and promoting, you know, the growth of, you know, and planting. If, if they don't already exist, I have replaced some plants or tried to grow some plants that weren't there already that are native to this area, that particular type of landscape, which is a mesa upland, um, part, part dry, part wet, uh, higher higher elevation ridge, what we call out here a ridge. I'm a ridge runner. You know? <laughs> I'm, on a, I'm on a flat ridge. I have a, a very steep northern slope that goes into a draw that goes, feeds into a creek. I have a steep southern slope that uh, goes directly to a road. The runoff on that road goes directly into the creek. I've got to kind of, I'm in the middle. I kind of watch things. And, um, and I believe mitigate erosion and runoff as much as I can, just from my own property lines, you know. And I believe there was Obama-era rules. I guess it was the EPA. They were regulating small bodies of water, and that that's been rolled back now um, to not not kind of every little creek and. Uh, you know, they were complaining about if you got a ditch, you come under this jurisdiction. And so they've rolled a lot of that back. I mean, there's a dead zone at the end of the Mississippi River, you know, from all the agricultural runoff. And it's just like, here's our delta of death, you know, that is the consequence of how we're growing our, our food. And then, you know, the, these chemicals are... It, everyone has chemicals in their bloodstream, in their in the breast milk. Plastics, <laughs> even plastics in their stomach and and in the blood, they're fighting plastics in every uh, aquatic animal, you know, and and uh, ocean, you know, mammal, mammals, and it, it's just it's horrific what we're doing to our planet. This is it's not sustainable. There's no way we can keep going the way we're going. Something's got to give. And the problem is, the thing that's giving is species. That's why we have so many species now that are gone, that are extinct. Well, and there's supposedly a uh, sixth mass extinction going on, you know, determined from looking through the fossil record of these various periods where there were mass die-offs, and apparently a lot of insects are going down. A lot of people remark that when they drive out in certain places, their windshield used to be full of bugs that they hit, and now, now they got a clean windshield. I was talking to a lady friend of mine who lives in South Dakota still, and when I was writing, I was writing an article about farms um, and farming on the Pine Ridge Reservation and Standing Rock Reservation, agricultural projects going on there that are, org are organic and use native species and um, contribute to food sovereignty on the reservations. And the lady that I spoke with used to have a farm in North Dakota. She's not native. Um, but her story was interesting because she mentioned that. That was one of the things that she, she brought up is that it used to be you'd drive down the road at certain times of year and the bugs would be so thick on your windshield, you know, you'd have to use the windshield wipers uh, to get them off so you could see to drive. 
And now that's not the case. And I know this is, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, well, it's, you know, weather patterns change all the time. But no, this is because of global warming. This is because of uh, pesticides. This is because of lots of different things that we're doing to our own environment to eradicate the, the human race. That, that's what we're doing. We're eradicating our own human race by our own activities, our own human activities. I wish more people would understand that this is not, <laughs> it's not a joke, you know, it's not a partisan thing. It's not a, a Republican or Democrat argument. This is, this is <laughs> actual need to keep humanity alive, to keep our environment uh, viable so that we can live in it. And this is something that was written about back in the 1960s and the early 70s by, by several different uh, environmentalists, um, ecologists, biologists, people who were studying plant life and, and animal life and weather patterns and, and things way back then. And now we're seeing it happen. You know, it was prophetic because we're, we're seeing the results of it. Uh, this mass extinction, the sixth mass extinction you're talking about that's happening now, you know, we can see it in the number of birds, the bird populations. Uh, Audubon Society publishes this information all the time I get you know I get an email every other day from the Audubon Society or Sierra Club talking about which species needs protection because you know we're losing our protections and we need to you know drive it home somehow that what needs to happen is saving our planet from ourselves I don't mean to get <laughs> I'm not on a soapbox here, believe me, I don't want to be. But this is a fact. We need to just wake up and, uh, you know, you can call it woke, you can call it what you want, but we need to actually wake up and realize that this isn't a game. We're not playing a game. This is our survival we're talking about. And as a human being, I want to survive. Hey, you know, I've got cats. They depend on me. I got to feed them. I got to be alive for them. <laughs> and and you've got some, and you've got some offspring, some future generations in the world. God bless. Yeah, you know, I've got four grandsons. I've got three granddaughters. I've got one granddaughter on the way, and a great granddaughter that just was born. You know, I have four daughters. I had five. I had, one passed away in '08, but. I have four daughters, and I want to see the planet preserve my family. I, I do, you know. I don't think that's a selfish thing to want. I'd like to see my family live. I'd like to see your family live. I'd like to see everyone survive, be able to survive this mess that we This is In Nature. This is Juliana Daly with In Nature. Today, I am talking to you about the whooping crane.
The whooping crane is an endangered crane species native to North America named for its whooping calls. It has snowy white plumage, a crimson cap, and is very graceful. It is the tallest and the rarest North American bird. Whooping cranes rely on shallow marshes and adjacent open grasslands. That is why we are fortunate to have the Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area near Linton, Indiana. They breed in remote northern forests and migrate by day in family groups and travel along rather narrow corridors and make traditional stopovers like Goose Pond in Indiana. They are omnivorous and eat insects, shrimp, crabs, clams, snails, frogs, seeds, acorns, roots, berries, and a lot more. In courtship, pairs dance, leaping into the air repeatedly with flapping wings, bills pointed upward, giving bugling calls. The nest sits on the ground, typically on marshy land in a lake or a pond. It is a large mound of grass, weeds, and mud with a depression in the middle. They typically lay two eggs, which are olive buffs spotted with dark brown. Incubation is by both sexes, and the chicks hatch within 29 to 31 days. Whooping cranes came close to extinction because of habitat loss and unregulated hunting. Today, there are approximately 536 whooping cranes. You've been listening to In Nature, a production of WFHB. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I am Robert Schull. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Learn about the winds of change at McCormick's Creek State Park on Saturday, January 13th at 3 p.m. You'll get an overview of the park's ongoing recovery efforts and a look at the role of ecological succession in the future of our forest ecosystems. Meet at the Nature Center. The Brown County State Park Winter Hike Series starts off the new year with the Boulder in the Tree Hike on Saturday, January 13th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. This is your chance to see the Boulder in the Tree and try to figure out how it got there. Boots are essential for this hike. There will be a Kids Birding Day at the Wild Birds Unlimited in Bloomington on Sunday, January 14th from 1 to 3 p.m. Jill Vance, the interpretive naturalist from Monroe Lake, will help kids make a fun-filled bird craft and how to use kid-sized binoculars. 
The Whooper Wednesdays will continue at Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area until February the 21st. Come to the Visitor Center on Wednesday, January the 17th at 8 a.m. to walk the property and see if you can spot some of the resident birds, including the endangered whooping crane. Make sure to dress for the weather. Take the mysterious monument hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, January 20th from 11 to 11.45 a.m. You will stroll along a stream to the mysterious monument where the Donaldson Cave, near the Donaldson Cave, and hear the story of two Scottish gentlemen associated with it. Meet at the Lakeview Activity Center. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy. Today's news feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Cade Young. Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by Eco Report team. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Cade Young and Noel Herhusky Schneider produced today's show. Brandon Blewett is our engineer. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I am Robert Schull. And this is Eco Report. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to The Eco Report, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.